So many of you, most of you are probably familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was hanged in a Nazi concentration camp in April, April 9th of 1945, just a short time before the prisoners were freed by Allied forces. So he had been in prison for two years for his opposition to Hitler and the Nazi party. And while he was in prison, he shared the gospel with fellow prisoners and with guards. He wrote many letters and he preached sermons. Throughout his career, he wrote a number of books. And one of those books is called The Cost of Discipleship. So he certainly lived what he wrote, what he preached. Let me just share a few quotes. They should be up here. You can follow along this way. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that, di it is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man or woman, he bids him come and die. So in that book, he wrote against the concept of cheap grace. Okay? And he says this, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And instead, he said we should embrace costly grace. He writes this, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's Matthew 13. It's the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. <clears throat> it is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. And then he makes a wise qualifier. He explains himself well here when speaking of costly grace. Last quote. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The do door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, right? Whoever wants to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and the gospels, you will find it. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. 1 Corinthians 6. And what, has and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. 
Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation, and we should add the cross of Christ. So the cost of discipleship is the theme this morning. Um, We're going to look at Mark chapter 6. We're walking through the gospel of Mark section by section. And this morning we're going to look at the first 30 verses in Mark 6. So if you're not there yet, I'd encourage you to turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 6 as we seek to study through those first 30 verses. It's on page 841 if you are using the Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the Pew in front of you and you can follow along that way. Again, page 841. So first point, hometown rejection. Verses 1 to 6. Look at verse 1. So Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So what's, what's going on here in Nazareth? What's the tone in his hometown? Well, it's, it's not as warm of a reception as he received in other villages. Oddly enough, you'd think, you know, hey, the hometown boy who's uh, been quite a viral sensation, you know, that they would be really glad to have him and hear him. But instead, as the next phrase, the next sentence goes, they took offense at him. So, do you hear the edge in some of these questions? Where did this man get these things? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? So, he's just a common carpenter. It's not necessarily derogatory to call him a carpenter because carpenter was a needed job, probably handled woodworking as well as um, stonework that was needed. In a village of maybe 500, Nazareth was just kind of a no-name town. So he was probably the carpenter. His dad was before him, and he was following in his footsteps. Joseph was. So why do they say the son of Mary? This is, you know, patriarchal society. Usually the genealogies were done with, you know, your father's name. Is there possibly a little bit of an allusion to the cloud of shame that he was born under? Is he illegitimate? Is the carpenter just normal? Joe, even born, you know, under some interesting circumstances. So there's some skepticism, some critical spirit in these words. How could this man, just a normal carpenter, born of Mary, like, with siblings who weren't even convinced of his mental stability. You remember back in chapter 3, they came to get Jesus because they thought he was out of his mind. How could he be anyone great? What, What makes him think he's so special? Who does he think he is? And they took offense at him. 
So here's the return of the hometown boy. Quite a sensation in the area. And the people, instead of like humbly listening to him, oh, the prodigy returns. Are you going to grace us with your presence now, Jesus? I mean, how is it that he's got this huge following? How can one with such a simple, unassuming origin have such power and such wisdom? He didn't even study. He doesn't even have a degree. He wasn't trained by a rabbi. He's blue collar, just like the rest of us. Who does he think he is? That's actually been the focus, right? King and cross. Who is Jesus and why did he come is the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. The identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus is central all the way through this book. You know, he calmed the wind and the waves. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So, Jesus said to them in response, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Okay, that was just an aphorism. A proverb that was common in both Jewish and Greek literature at the time. It's similar to our saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Verse 5, and he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Does that language bother anyone? (laughs) Jesus couldn't do any mighty works there except heal a few people, which, I mean... It's a little bit ironic because healing a few sick people is more than most of us can do. That's pretty mighty, but compared to what he did in other places, I mean, I thought Jesus was God in the flesh. He's omnipotent, right? How do we understand this? Well, in the parallel in Matthew's account, Matthew writes, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So, I think we understand maybe we aren't troubled by that language as much. The focus is not on Jesus' limits of power, but the lack of blessing that is the consequence of unbelief, okay? Same way with forgiveness of sin. Think about it this way. There is no forgiveness of sin where there is no repentance, right? That's kind of obvious. So we don't say, what do you mean? God isn't able to forgive unrepentant sinners? Do you see how it's... No, no, no. You forgive repentant sinners. The focus is not on his inability. It's on the responsibility of the one who is rejecting him. So, Mark previously has been highlighting the role of faith, right? In deliverance. And in healing, remember the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years and she touched his garment? It wasn't just the touch in some sort of magical, superstitious way. Jesus calls her out and said, daughter, your faith has made you well. So when faith is lacking, so is Jesus' power to be at work here. So this is about responsibility, not Jesus' inability. It's about their guilty rejection, not Jesus' impotent dejection. He's not going away just, oh, can't do anything, you know? 
So this is a microcosm of the reception that he ultimately received from the Jews, his own people, when he came. It anticipates, it foreshadows his ultimate rejection by his people. Remember John 1.10? He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And then verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. He moved on. Again, it's amazing. Jesus marvels. Everybody else in previous chapters was marveling at what Jesus did to heal and raise the dead and all this. Now Jesus is marveling at their unbelief. Again, we could go, oh, wait, can God be surprised? Or we can see this as a beautiful stroke in the portrait of Jesus' full humanity. Just like with the woman with the hemorrhage, isn't it curious? Again, fully God, fully man. That is a mystery beyond our comprehension. But he both can heal if someone touches his garment. There's this incredible power. And who touched me? fully human so limited in that sense while a man and the woman comes up so he marvels I'm sure with sadness at their unbelief so he took his disciples along with him to Nazareth that's a key phrase do you see it there in verse 1 he went away from there and came to his hometown this isn't just, you know, hey, mom, I'm home. You know, just, it's been a little busy lately. I just wanted to, you know, get, get home and kick back and chill out for a little bit. This is actually part of his mission. He, his disciples followed him here. All of this is on purpose. And now he's going to send his disciples out as representatives on his mission. So second point, sending the 12, verses 7 to 13. And he called the 12, look at verse 7, and began to send them out two by two, which certainly could be helpful on, in all kinds of practical ways, but also in Deuteronomy, remember it's by the testimony of two people that truth is confirmed, and so there's an echo of that here. So he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Don't just blow right past that. Isn't that amazing? Like, Think about that invisible, miraculous transaction. How did that happen? You now have power over the unclean spirits. It is his to give. So he sends them out, and he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. What, what is the point of all of this? Well, First off, we need to realize that this is a point in the story, okay? This is not a perpetual command for all disciples everywhere for all time. It's specific to this particular moment and mission. It's focused on dependence on God. This is a trial run in a sense, and it is a test of dependence. As you head out on mission, you're not going to beg for money, no extra clothing for sleeping outside. No, you need to be dependent on hospitality, totally dependent on God for basic necessities. 
Verse 10, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. In other words, don't dishonor your host if a better option for accommodations comes up. Stay there while you're there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. Kind of like he just did, sadly, as he left his own hometown. So this shaking the dust off your feet thing, it's actually like a prophetic act designed to provoke thought. Okay, so a modern equivalent for us might be verbal. So I remember back when we were living in, in the Chicago area, um, not far from where we live, and Hannah went to elementary school, kindergarten and first grade, there were some homes for missionaries and they would come into town and so sometimes they would take their kids to this elementary school. And I remember walking to pick up Hannah from school and I'd get there ahead of you know, the bell ringing and I met this one guy and he was actually a missionary in a really tough context in Africa where there was some pretty extreme Islamic presence and he would actually be intense sharing the gospel with radical Muslims and he didn't know if he was going to make it out alive sometimes. And he had kind of a practice because there would be some pretty lively debate in those tents between Islam and Christianity and the claims of, of Christ. And sometimes he said he would end the conversation with the equivalent of a slap on the knee of his conversation partner saying, well, one of us is wrong and whoever is wrong is in deep trouble. So shaking the dust off the feet is not necessarily condemning them to hell, but it is a sobering kind of symbolic word like, listen, I'm not guilty. Your blood is on your own hands. Or you're on your own head. So here's the point. The disciples, like Jesus, as his representatives, being sent out by him as his ambassadors, were to be a fork in the road. They were to confront people with the truth. And as you confront, you're a fork in the road. You either reject or you accept. So one commentator, William Lane, summarizes it well. He says, the clear intimation that the disciples would experience rejection injects an ominous note, note into the charge. There would be villages where no hospitality would be offered and where their word would not be tolerated. In this situation, they were to shake the dust from their feet as a testimony and warning to the villagers and go elsewhere. This instruction is intelligible in the light of Jewish practice. It was the custom of pious Jews who had traveled outside of Israel to remove carefully from their feet and clothing all dust of the alien lands in which they had traveled. By this action, they disassociated themselves from the pollution of those lands and their ultimate judgment. It would provide warning that the disciples had fulfilled their responsibility and that those who had rejected the mission would have to answer to God. So, get yourself in the mind of a first century Jew. How are the lines drawn as far as the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world? If you are a Jew, you're in the kingdom of God. If you're a Gentile, well, they're obviously part of the kingdoms of this world. So the Jew would shake the dust off his feet when he came home. Now, Jesus is saying, even if you go to a Jewish village and they reject my teaching, you shake your dust, the, sh the dust off your feet. The boundary lines are being redrawn. 
because Jesus is coming to make a new people, a new covenant and a new people. And it's completely defined by who's with him. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking? Okay. So, verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Okay, we have an echo here of Mark 1, 14 and 15. John was arrested and Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And here are his disciples echoing his message. Even John the Baptist's message back in Mark 1, 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. God's coming. You got to get ready. So, This is like an early echo of what we see in the book of Romans. Chapters one to three, all alike, everybody that you rub shoulders with, and each of us, we are sinners in need of mercy and salvation. All are without excuse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one, and God holds all people accountable. Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And so, repent. (laughs) Believe the gospel. Because we're all guilty. We all have to turn around to be rescued, to be saved. Verse 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. It's early precursor to what we see in James 5. If anyone is sick, have him call the elders of the church and they will anoint him with oil and pray over him and healing will be given to the prayer in faith. So they're doing what Jesus did, proclaiming his message and doing his mighty works. Their commission is in word and deed. They're carrying out his mission as his representatives. Okay, so this actually anticipates the words and works present in our faithful witness as well. Think of Matthew 5. We are salt and light. We bring the truth of the gospel to people, calling them to repent and believe in Jesus. And then we also display the love of Christ and the power of the gospel in the way in which we live. So it's word and deed together, not divorced. Now, we're going to transition to point number three here, verses 13 to 14. And the connection here can be a little difficult to discern. Like, what in the world is this Herod John the Baptist thing doing in here? It's like almost the whole section. And what's the point? Just like a history lesson? So why is this digression in here? Starting at verse 14, look at it with me. So King Herod heard of it, that the disciples had gone out and they were proclaiming in Jesus' name and people were being, you know, freed of demons and the the sick were being healed. So, you know, I'm sure he's sensitive to any sort of subversive activity. You know, this is the gospel of the kingdom. And man, everybody seems to be following this guy. Maybe they're calling him a king. And now his disciples are going out. This thing is spreading, so it's getting his attention. So King Herod heard of it. 
for Jesus' name had become known. And some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. There were expectations of Elijah returning. Remember, he was just taken away. He didn't die. So even Malachi 4 speaks of the return of Elijah the prophet. Others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. So people are struggling to explain Jesus. He's an enigma. He's a phenomenon. Like, was he a prophet? Was he John the Baptist raised from the dead? Was he Elijah returned? How do you determine who this man is? What is this man? Verse 16, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And so now we're going to get a little backstory. So Herod certainly had an uneasy conscience over John the Baptist. Had John returned to haunt him? So let's look at the, the backstory here. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias, who used to be his brother Philip's wife, but now is Herod's wife, had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death. But she couldn't because Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, so this is the daughter of Herodias and Philip, Herod's brother. Everybody with me here? She dances for these men. She pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When, her, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So, we don't need to spend time understanding the family tree. I think you've got enough to understand what's going on. It actually is a fairly complicated family tree. But the bottom line is his marriage to his brother's wife, his brother was still alive, was against God's law. John the Baptist was not afraid to speak truth to power. And it cost him dearly. John the Baptist was no respecter of persons. He was in no one's pocket. He proclaimed the truth regardless of the consequences. All must repent, even those who dwell in palaces. I mean, Herod, he's con conflicted. We can see that, right? He feared and respected John. He knew he was a righteous and a holy man, and he protected him. So he, he kind of shut him up, put him in prison, maybe made his new wife happy. But he also liked to hear John, even though he didn't really follow what John said. Herodias, on the other hand, hated John. She held a grudge against him, wanted him dead. 
And so she bided her time and waited for an opportune moment. And it seems like she used her daughter to get her will. I mean, this is not a G-rated dance. Herod, no doubt, is drunk. He makes a rash vow, and he soon regrets it. I mean, this account is meant to turn our stomachs. An unlawful marriage leading to a wife and mother from a deeply held grudge and desire for murderous revenge encourages the objectification of her daughter before the eyes of her husband and a bunch of, of his drunk colleagues. Everybody's pleased with her dancing and then this rash bow and then immediately John's head is on a platter. The kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God are ultimately and completely at odds. Sure, Herod enjoyed listening to John speak, but don't let that fool you. This is who he actually is. He never did anything about it. He tried to have his cake and eat it too, listen to John, but not really do anything, except ultimately some really ugly things. So this episode kind of pulls the curtain back, the facade back, and shows us the real heart of this world and its value system. So you can be interested in Jesus without actually following him. But again, we've got to ask the question, why is this story even in here? Is it a digression, like a rabbit trail? Is it just interesting filler, like, you know, when you didn't really know what to write about in that eighth grade, you know, essay, and so you just tried to stuff little things in there to make it to the page count? was Mark like, oh, and yeah, I forgot to tell you about Herod and John the Baptist. I'll just plug it in right here. No. The ordering of this gospel, the way it's written, is very careful and thoughtful. Certainly, guided by the Holy Spirit, the point is clear. John told the truth, and it got him killed. And that's a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Jesus. And it's an important lesson for these disciples regarding what it may mean for them as well. Look at verse 30. It's a bookend. You remember back in verse 13? He sent them out. They cast out demons, anointed people with oil. They're on mission. And then verse 30, after the digression... The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So there's intentionality. Mark sandwiches that story in between on purpose. It's not disconnected. It's part of the point. So Jesus took his disciples with him to his hometown, and he was rejected. Ready? We're going to zoom out and see the whole big picture and the purpose. He sent them out and told them that some people, some places, are going to reject them and they should shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against them. And John the Baptist told the truth about the kingdom of God and the need to repent and it got him killed. And Jesus is on his way to being killed for the truth that he came to proclaim. So John the Baptist, that story is a foreshadowing of things to come. It's a taste, it's a sign, an indication of what the citizens of the kingdom of God can expect from the kingdoms of this world. This is what disciples of Jesus can expect from the world. Remember, Kevin read it, Matthew 11, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. How does that usually go for sheep? 
Some of you they will kill. Don't fear those who can kill the body. After that, I have nothing more that they can do. Fear for God alone. So what's the takeaway for us? What's the application? I know this is a heavy passage, but the tone of the morning, of our study, should match the tone of the text. So if it's a joyful, rejoicing, like, woohoo text, then the tone of the morning should match that. If the tone of the text is cost of discipleship, this is sobering, we need to count the cost, then that's the tone of the morning as well. So last point, the cost of discipleship. Because listen, Jesus gives us his authority when he sends us on mission. All authority is in heaven and earth has been given to me, he says at the end of Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And surely I will be with you even to the end of the age. And you know what? To us, some will respond, and God's going to use us to build his kingdom, bring people into the kingdom. But guess what? We're also going to make some enemies precisely because we're speaking the truth. And we need to be willing to follow no matter the cost. So we've said it in past weeks. The gospel according to Mark, all about the identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus, but also discipleship is running all the way through this gospel. So the disciples up until this point were kind of operating like one commentator says, like companions and spectators. But Jesus was going to move them to active participants. And it's the same thing for us. We aren't supposed to be just spectators. We're supposed to be active participants. And so we need to count the cost. I mean, this anticipates the progression in Mark 8 as well. In fact, you could flip ahead there because this is not the only time this kind of count the cost language is present in Mark's gospel. So Mark chapter 8, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the anointed one in verse 29. And then Jesus says, okay, you know who I am, but I still think that your categories are off. You have the wrong expectations. You think I'm just going to come and, you know, knock down the Romans and set up the kingdom physically right now. I didn't come to deliver you from the Romans. I came to deliver you from sin and death and hell. And so he begins to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and killed. And then he's going to rise again. Peter rebukes Jesus because he had the wrong expectation. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And then he calls the crowd to him with his disciples and says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever tries to save his life, save your comforts, selfishly live for yourself, be, you know, the master of your faith, be it fate, be in charge of your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake in the gospels, you will save it, you will find it. So, 
This has everything to do with who Jesus is and why he came and the implications if we are his disciples. It's why later on in chapter 10, remember, when a couple of the disciples wanted to sit at Jesus' left and right hand, they wanted to be like in his cabinet as he came to his power. Again, they expected him to just throw down Roman oppression and set up the kingdom. They wanted a military political leader. And he says, no, 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 no. The, the rulers of the nations, they lord it over. They want to dominate. It shall not be so among you. Right? He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is who I am. This is why I came. And there are massive implications if you are going to follow me. The manner in which Jesus came must dictate the manner in which we, as his disciples, go. He didn't come the first time on a war horse. He came on a humble donkey and he hung on a cross. So just think about this. Think about the fact that Jesus went to Nazareth, I mean, this obscure little village, maybe 500 people. And, and we could see in that whole scene at his hometown the skepticism, the coldness, the hardness of his literal nuclear family and his kin and his townspeople, yes. But is there also a glimpse of the glory of Jesus in there? in that he never played the God card growing up. They're surprised. Was this the carpenter? Like, he wasn't setting fig trees on fire when he was nine years old. Like, hey, watch this. He really came humble. He was a carpenter. The manner of Jesus. So yes, Jesus was tough, and he would say it like it was. But he was tender. And he loved his enemies and prayed for those who persecuted him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he calls us to do the same. His power was actually exercised through weakness. And he calls us to do the same. He was a peacemaker seeking to reconcile people to God. And he calls us to do the same. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And he goes on to say, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's normal. It's to be expected to go on in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Listen, to so many in our world, Christians are angry, stop the steal Republicans who don't care about women and harbor abuse and scandal in our camp. 
I'm not saying that's a fair characterization, although actually that is true of a swath of American public. And I certainly hope that that's none of us in here, okay? So, so what I'm actually describing is the way Christians are viewed in our culture. And sometimes it's precisely because that's what they're yelling about. But as disciples of Jesus, there are ditches on both sides of the Calvary Road following him. We can, on the one hand, be fearful of the reaction of the world. We can soft-pedal the truth. We can accommodate to the culture. We don't want to upset anybody, and we're afraid to speak the truth. We don't want people not to like us. We don't want to be rejected. We, we never call anyone to repent. We avoid all the hot-button issues. We are closet Christians. And this passage is here to say you must go public with your faith and know that believing and obeying and speaking the truth will cost you. We will have enemies. All who desire, Paul wrote to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if you're going to follow Jesus, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. We need to care more about what Jesus thinks than we do what other people might think of us. We need to let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abides still. <clears throat> Can't be afraid of being a fork in the road for people. In fact, Jesus intends us to be so. And then there's a ditch on the other side of the road that we become fighters instead of lovers. I, I don't mean that to be funny, even though I know that usually is used in kind of a funny way. But some Christians just seem to love to pick a fight. Twitter's your battlefield. You love forwarding provocative emails. You don't care what anyone thinks. You don't mind having enemies. Bring them on. But you aren't called to make enemies. You're called to speak the truth in love. And you're called to love your enemies. Remember the manner in which Jesus calls us to follow him. We're called not to return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Romans 12, bless and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So listen, this is tough. Like staying on the Calvary Road and not wandering into the ditch on one side or the other is difficult. We need the grace and wisdom of Jesus. Each of us is probably inclined one way or the other, and we may need to lean a little bit in the opposite direction so that we can stay on the path. Most importantly, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the perfectly tough one, the perfectly tender one, and follow him no matter the cost. So we're going to 
close fittingly with the song. It's an old song that's been rearranged. Jesus, I, my cross have taken. We've sung it a number of times in the past. So if the musicians want to come up. But listen, what is it that you fear Jesus asking of you? Are we really like all in with him, no matter the cost? We need to count the cost of discipleship. And this is not just like a, you know, homiletical, rhetorical question. Like, this is you and Jesus right now. Like, we're not here by accident. We need to do business with Jesus. So what is it for you? What is it for me? And listen, as we look at the cost, let's make sure we see above, behind, all around the cost the costly gift of grace, the treasure in the field, all that we have in Christ, forgiveness of sins, adoption into the family of God, all the very great and precious promises. We have the smile of God. We have everything. We have a future hope, living hope that cannot perish, spoil, or or fail. If we fix our eyes on the infinite value of Christ, then we are just going to, in our joy, go and sell all that we have, right? But if we don't look at the worth of Christ, it's just going to be like, oh, I've got to do all this, all all this cost, cost, cost. So let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that we can throw off whatever hinders whatever weighs us down, and run with endurance the race set before us. Jesus, I my cross have taken. Let's sing.